All right, guys, welcome back to the Alley Peter Fitness Podcast. Today, I have Joel Stanek on the show. Um, many of you guys have been following really anybody in powerlifting, especially Ron Nationals, you should be pretty familiar with um, his coaching company, most notably um, Angelo Fortino and Austin Perkins winning their respective weight classes. Um, but he also had several other athletes on, at that competition do incredibly well. Um, Joe has lots of experience coaching and has a lot of, you know, I do believe you are the CEO of Game Day Barbell. Um, so there's lots of coaches there, put out lots of really great content. And, um, I've been following Joe for a while, uh, since like his start interning at TSA to, you know, then expanding off and doing his own thing with game day. Um, it's really cool. I think that Joe has a really great thing going and, um, it's one of the more well-respected coaches in powerlifting at this point for, you know, good, good reason kind of has, uh, you know, the athletes, uh, results to show for it. So, uh, yeah, Joe, did, you, did I miss anything? No, I, I mean, first of all, I, I will say, technically speaking, I'm the the president of the company. Tim is the is the CEO. That's a relatively uh, new thing, um, and I actually uh, stepped away from that role because I want to focus on the coaching program more. Um, running a business is is amazing, and I, I still obviously have a hand in it. Um, but to me, coaching has just kind of always been the passion, and. Um, you know, Tim's got the corporate experience, whereas I don't. And I think that it's, uh, it's, it's a better suited position for him. So I, I just want to give him his flowers where that's due, but yeah, that's, that's pretty much everything. Um, yeah, that's a good, that's, that's like a discussion in and of itself with like, just being a coach versus like running your own business and trying to coach is like a completely different ball game. So happy to hear that, you know, you guys have kind of found like what that role is, which is also going to help you be able to just get a better results for your, for your own athletes. For sure. Yeah. And I, I think, I mean, you, you obviously know this as a, uh, as a coach yourself, but, um, you know, it is, it's a job that requires a lot of monitoring and, you know, running a, running a, a business at the same time, um, you know, you spread yourself too thin and, and things just aren't going to get done. So yeah, I'm, I'm uh, happy for the, the, the new chapter when it comes to that. And yeah, coaching is just kind of what I've always been good at. And rather than, I forget who said it, but it's just like, you don't, you don't want to do a, try to do a million things good. You want to do one thing great. And that's kind of my goal. So. Yeah, totally. Like that's like like my own business. Like I'm, you know, working on scaling and getting other people to help with that stuff. So I don't have to do that. And I can work more on, on the coaching side of things and doing what I really like. Um, plus I, I think that like you kind of get a drag on like whatever you're like, you really do enjoy. And um, I think that like the more that you can just invest your time in that, you're just, like you said, you're just going to be better at that. So I wanted to basically, I uh, had a few, we had a few questions uh, we did we talk about in the DMs. Um, I wanted to first go off of um, programming strategies for more injury prone lifters, because I do think that this is something that's a little bit more common than people do to think, or lifters who just have extremely like low volume tolerances this is how I uh, basically characterize this. And you have to get really creative with your programming strategies to really allow them to make progress. So um, what are some programming strategies that you've observed with maybe some more injury prone lifters that you coached? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'll start off by saying I'm, I'm a pretty injury prone lifter myself. So, uh, this is a topic that's pretty close to my heart because I have to be very careful, uh, with my own lifting in order to not get injured. And I, I think that, you know, everybody sees, sees all the, the lifters that are making all this progress online and they, they think like, oh, it's so easy to, to keep doing that. But in reality, um, the less injured that you are throughout your career, more than likely the stronger you're going to be, regardless of, of your genetics. Um, so with that said, I, I think the first thing that we need to think about here is what is the the nature of what actually, you know, makes somebody more injury prone? Like what are the characteristics of it? Um, and I think that understanding that is is ultimately 
what allows us to select a strategy that makes sense for that person. Because one injury prone person may not be the same type of injury prone compared to another. Like just to give an example, um, you know, a taller lifter, generally speaking, um, if that person has been injured a lot, more than likely it's because of the fact that they are tall, they have longer limbs and generally have to move the bar further. Right. So we have to take that into account versus somebody who, you know, maybe like they're a particularly short, very lean lifter. If they're getting injured a lot, it's probably just because they're very efficient and they likely can move a lot of weight for their size. And, you know, maybe their recovery isn't on as on point. So you have to really start out by thinking about why this lifter is actually getting injured. And I mean, a lot of that maybe comes back to the whole idea of load management, which is what most people throw around when they say, Oh, oh you got injured. Well, your load management sucks. Sure. That's a big all encompassing term, but we have to yeah. be more specific when it comes to that. So with all of that said, um, I, I do think that the first thing that I don't hear as often from people is to actually track tonnage. So I'm sure you remember the days where volume was king for everything when it came to powerlifting. Um, everybody was like, I'm doing this many pounds of volume. And that was the key to being as strong as possible. Um, and since then, luckily that has kind of fallen out of fashion, I think for, for most people. Um, but to me, I think that tonnage is still useful in monitoring just how likely an injury could be. So if you see an athlete's tonnage creeping up far too much, more than likely their workload is going to be very high. And as a result, the risk of injury goes higher. So without even you know changing up somebody's programming, I think that it makes sense if you see somebody making a good amount of progress with very little injury to try to keep their tonnage around that level. And if you start to see it increase massively, you maybe need to scale back on the amount of sets that the athlete is doing um, or maybe even, you know, the overall intensity of their training, just to make sure that they're actually staying within that tonnage. Um, because I, I, I truly do believe that, uh, having a sort of adaptable tonnage is something that's pretty static when it comes to, to most athletes. It's more, um, the, uh, sets and reps that are, are going to, to matter that need to change over the course of many training cycles, that sort of deal. Um, One thing with, with there, um, is like, I, I went with that. I think that that actually does matter in the sense of like, that's like why higher reps or low reps, like a certain rep, rep range might work best for somebody. Like you might see like, like for example, I'm somebody who I respond really well, well to higher reps. And because I'm really not well leveraged for a lot of, of, of lifts, it, it makes sense, some sense because it's like, that's the way I can get them some more volume while managing that low without me getting really beat up. Like for example, in like peaking blocks, I really pay attention to that with like, I don't want the average tonnage or intensity to go up too much because if I know somebody, maybe they, they're embarrassed around like this sort of, Rep ranges might correlate to this on the RPE scale. I should probably manipulate the down sets to help manage that. Right, exactly. And that was actually going to be, you know, one of my one of my next points is, um, you know, you, you have to almost be kind of uh, bipolar with your training models with these types of athletes. Um, whereas you might see, you know, an, an average lifter uh, getting into like a certain level of intensity across a training program uh, across both. Um, you know, their top sets and, and back downs or, you know, whatever, um, lifters that are more injury prone, I find you need to either, you know, push their, their top sets really, really intense. Then their back offs have to be very, very low intensity or vice versa. They're just, they're not good at one thing or the other. Um, so just like, as an example, uh, I have a, I have a taller lifter who's a, a 125 kilo lifter and because of the amount of the just range of motion for his squat. 
Um, generally speaking, he just does not handle those higher reps very well. But when we try to give him uh, too many low reps, that also increases his chance of injury. We've, we've had multiple things. So what ends up happening um, is for him, we just do a lot of sets of very low intensity, um, low rep work as part of his back down work. And that seems to do the trick. And then we only really push the intensity on his top sets. And that's how he makes progress. Whereas I, I guess maybe if you think about say like Austin Perkins, for example, um, Austin just can generally handle you know, kind of a little bit of everything and, and be just fine because he's so efficient. So you, you really have to look at um, the lifter's leverage. That's, that's kind of a, a big thing for predicting injury rate. And then just kind of figuring out like what works and what gives them sort of the minimum stimulus that's needed to make progress. And that's, that's kind of the, the cornerstone of programming for any athlete, in my opinion, but especially for injury prone lifters is you're always looking for that sort of minimum stimulus that's going to make them progress. Right. Um, especially thing that I think that like over a training career too, um, we I think that people forget that like nobody cares about how hard you're working in the sense of like how much volume that you're you're doing. Um, it just matters like what are you doing and actually driving progress. Um, you know, we've all had periods of time where, you know, we've worked really hard, but you know, we go nowhere and periods of some time where we pull back a lot to more of a reasonable dose and we see more, more progress. I think it's also about really learning how to like unregulate and listen to your body from like not just we talk about a lot from intensity. We don't talk about that much about volume um, because if you're feeling really, really beat up, like for example, um, you know, I feel beat up on my chest a lot. Like if I go too high with relative intensity, that's a lot because my force curve is such that um, it's easy until it's RPE nine <laughs> and just because I'm on my really long limbs. And so I have to take note of that. And also if I'm feeling overly sore, I might not do as much volume in that preceding session. Um, I know Mike is a talks a lot about that volume auto regulation standpoint, of things but you know we think about coaching is really a high level auto regulation and we really need to basically have that connection with our athlete and really ask them how are you feeling going to some intercessions um for like a fatigue standpoint or readiness standpoint and then it's also important i think in this context to actually identify when the lifter is communicating do i feel beat up or this feels heavy is that because of fatigue or is that because of lack of preparedness going into the into the the, the session because you know and this can one of the hard things here is that as you get more advanced, you're going to generally need a little bit more, more volume. Now, a lot of times that will go up because you're getting stronger, but sometimes in order for you to make progress, you just need to have your lifestyle variables in check where you can actually handle that amount of volume and that amount of intensity. I have one of my lifters who had a big lifestyle change in Tokyo for the military, and he was making really good, good, good progress. And he was saying, I feel really fatigued. I looked over his training program. Like, I don't think it's this fatigue from like the training. I think it's a lifestyle stuff. Like, sure. Like, let's see. And I lowered it down and he just went, went, went nowhere. Um, and then putting it back up and, you know, also incorporating some more ranges to help with his, um, he has a harder time on regulating, um, you know, how training is supposed to feel on certain days. Um, I think that's also one of the other strategies I will use is like sort of, I guess, really managing the rate of progression with yeah. um, how they are progressing and using like a combination of percentage and RPE work. Um, yeah. depending on the, on the, on the, on the lifter. Yeah. So I, I, again, I have that on my, my notes here when I was preparing for this. Um, I think using what I, what I call sort of out of the box, um, progression models, and maybe they're a little bit less out of the box these days, but, um, you know, we, we know from a good amount of research, um, I'm sure you're familiar with, with data-driven strength, yeah. um, 
so I was coached by, by Zach Cooper for a long time. And, um, one of the things that he's big on is, is force production, right? And if we, if we do look at the quality of strength, um, one of the things that we know for a fact is that, that strength is generally developed, um, through those first, you know, one to two reps of, of training, um, that we're doing where our force production is the highest. And, and honestly, you can develop that force production at lower RPEs. So, um, for me, I, I think it's, it's very big to see, uh, with a lot of my injury prone lifters, I'll, I'll do something where a lot of their training is just, you know, generally lower RP. Um, and then we'll take a huge jump at the end of training. And, and that seems to work very well. Um, you also, I, I just want to touch very briefly on, on lifestyle variables, because I, I think that this is a conversation that for a lot of people that are at least somewhat educated in powerlifting, it's almost kind of written off. Like people just always assume like, oh yeah, your lifestyle variable. Sure. That's, that's number one. It, but just to, you know, for everybody that's listening here, that that's the basis of everything. Like all these advanced training concepts and all that, they're great. And they will absolutely help you become stronger. But if you go home and are getting five hours of sleep consistently, none of that matters because you're not going to recover in such a way that any of this works. You know, we can talk about being, you know, predictably strong in, on certain days or whatever. We can talk about that until the, the cows come home. But if you are not getting your protein in, if you're, you know, drinking all the time, if you are, um, you know, just doing, doing whatever that is going to actually affect your recovery, you're, you're not going to do well. Like again, Austin, if we're talking about him, he talked about this on uh, another podcast, uh, you know, for, for a long time, Austin just like was living that college boy life. He was, you know, going out, he was just doing things that you would never expect somebody who has the potential to be the greatest power lifter in the world to do. And then as soon as he cut all of that stuff out, it was, it was simple. He just, he always had the performance that he had at raw nationals in him. It was a matter of cutting all of that crap out of his life. So I just want to highlight that here because as far as being injury prone, you as a lifter, you listening at home may not be as injury prone as you think. You may just not have all of your stuff together and you need to stop underestimating the importance of that. Right. I also think that one of the things I tell all my lifters is like in the check-ins, I look over and I'm like, okay, like, you know, maybe they're not complaining about not making progress. I'm like, what are you not doing? Right. That, you know, that you should be be doing right. Usually it's at least one thing. I'm like, that's why this week felt like shit. Or that's why this day wasn't going well. You know, for me, I've always had issues with just with uh, eating enough. Um, and then as soon as I eat enough, it's like, what happened? Like, what changed with your program? Like, nothing. Literally nothing. I just got, I did that better. Um, and I think also just like stress, you know, I think people like to, <laughs> yes, there are different levels of stress depending on your job. Obviously, working in healthcare, you know, you have 12-hour shift and whatever. Like, that's going to be more, more difficult. But the reality is that everybody has stress. Um, that's a part of adulting. That's a more part of life. And big you know, stress management strategies are huge. Like I used to be so anxious about everything in my life. There's something I was like, oh, this isn't perfect for my, for my, my, my training. I would freak out. Like, oh no, like squats are going to suck today. Um, and one of the things I've learned a lot from talking with athletes on my podcast, um, observing things, um, and even coaches is like the more, the most successful people in bodybuilding and powerlifting are just really like that. Like they get, they have stress but they're able to just de decompress and take like things like one set at a time. And I think it's the skill of compartmentalizing and dealing with like one task at a time instead of like, it's like I'm, I basically have, I learned this is like writing down lists, right? My, my day. And I don't worry about how long I have to do this. I worry about what I have to do right now. And I don't worry about anything else. Um, that's also important. I think that's also something with, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it can't be talked about enough because I think, you know, coaches, 
we do need to have those, those you know, we obviously all want, you know, it does go a lot with us with, you know, are you making progress or not? But your athletes, like if you really want to be the best, like do what you know is necessary. And if you're like, if something, you know, is off outside of training, like, and you're not making as good progress, but you're unwilling or unable to, you might just need to just say, maybe I can't expect, you know, what I'm expecting from my training right now. Or maybe, maybe like progress just going to take longer to realize because of that. Yeah. I think, I think managing expectations with, with any athlete is important, but yeah, even, even if we're talking just injury prone, like it can be very stressful again, just speaking more personally in this particular case, it can be very stressful when you are not making progress and are just only getting injured. But the moment that you, I think there's a book called the gift of injury. Um, if, if anybody is going through a long period of injury, give that a good read. Um, something that, that it talks about in that book that, feeds into our, our pain and oftentimes feeds into the, the cyclical nature of injuries um, is that we get so stressed out because we're not able to do what we think our body should be able to do. But the moment you're able to sort of let go and say, hmm, maybe I'm not meant to make this level of progress right now. Maybe I'm meant to do this. That in and of itself can help break the cycle of injury in the first place because you're just less stressed. And stressed, stress in general does have a, a major impact on injury proneness. Um, you know, I, I, I genuinely, uh, well, one, I, I agree fully that what you said about be, people being more laid back generally just do better in, in lifting because yeah, they're, they're able to be less stressful, but, um, just, just kind of putting yourself in this position where it's the journey, not the destination. Uh, and again, I, I feel like I'm saying this and there are going to be some people listening to this podcast and, and saying that's some of the most basic advice ever, but I, I think so many people just write that off. Um, there's, there's a lot of basic things that will absolutely, uh, make a huge difference in your injury proneness that don't even have anything to do directly with the way that you are programmed. Like one of the things for me that was huge that ultimately broke the cycle of injury was just being more active outside of training. Like I took a good look at my step counts and yeah, I was basically sedentary outside of training and we know that blood flow is relatively restorative. So, you know, just adding a couple, couple walks throughout the day. And I, I'm sure there are some point throughout the day that everybody who's listening to this can go and take a walk, just adding that in, getting a little bit more activity in like, that was it. That was all I needed. And now that's a, that's a habit that I maintain pretty darn well to this day. And I am lucky to say that, you know, for, for various reasons, I, ha I haven't had any major injuries in a while. Um, so yeah, just basic stuff like that is, is, you know, the absolute building blocks when it comes to all of this stuff. Um, I mean, the only other thing that I would say, uh, that we, we didn't really touch on as far as, as this stuff goes, um, is to, uh, shift training volume over to any sort of transferable accessory work, uh, and push that a little bit harder. It's something that all of the topics that you gave me that I'm probably going to hit on a lot is that muscular development is a huge part of powerlifting. Um, maybe even more so than at least for me, than most people think. Um, but for, for injury prone athletes, there is only so much squat bench press and deadlift volume that every lifter can do, regardless of how injury prone you are. And if you are finding yourself getting injured a lot and you have all that stuff dialed in that we just talked about, maybe it is that your body just does not tolerate the squat bench press and deadlift very well. And you may need to shift that over to something that you know, is, is going to help make your legs bigger, you know, muscle tends to overcome disadvantages in leverage. So 
do more, do more volume on things that are going to actually increase the size of your legs, your chest, your triceps, your, your everything. And you may find that despite the fact that you're doing less squat, bench, press, and deadlift, you may make better progress. Right. And I think that, you know, a good example is actually Charlie Dixon, because like, look at how Jack that dude is. Like, I always feel like, how are you 90 kilos? There's no mm-hmm. way you're 90 kilos. Um, I've actually talked to him about like how his turning um, has changed, like, um, you know, with like Brad and, and, and him and, and whatnot. And, um, Charlie did a lot of specificity early on, and he was being irresponsible that he, he was young. I was also before he got to be, you know, Charlie Dixon right now strong. Um, and right now it's like he's converted to the past. It's just like, I think he, he sent over his program. He does like only a few sets of squats a week, very light deadlifts, not much benching. And most of his volume comes from his accessory work. And Charlie is incredibly jacked. And the reality is that sometimes, you know, you don't need as much of that as, as you might think. Um, like we know from the literature that the minimum effective volume, especially for peak strength is pretty low. Um, yeah. And for a lot of people, it's frankly, it is that, you know, it is that muscle that is holding them back. Obviously, you know, I know that this is a little bit of an interesting topic. I know that like Jordan Flagelamal has talked pretty ad nauseum more recently about how, uh, like, and maybe it doesn't matter that much. I'm like, I, I think it does because if you look at really everybody, it's like, you know, that's kind of like assuming that everybody can tolerate a squat bench and deadlift as well as, you know, you might think, you know, the stereotypical powerlifter can. I also think you can't just look at the top lifters and say, this is like, let's, let's be honest, I'm sure with your lot of your top lifters, there's, they, they pretty much can tolerate whatever. <laughs> like you kind of put whatever out to them and more and more or less, like, obviously if things are going to shift and you've talked about like Austin and Angelo with, but, you know, especially with injuries and, and whatnot for cropping up. Um, but I just, I think that you need to be open-minded to understanding that stimulus can come in various forms. And you also need to be okay with like unconventional programming strategies, just not working or sorry, we're working better than more, more conventional. Um, so I, that's just an interesting discussion because like for, for me, like my squats are like, it's mostly comes from accessories and my downsets are really, really light because I just can't tolerate the high of average intensity. Um, but then I push my deadlift really hard because I'm well leveraged for it. And I actually get up pretty, I feel like I get more muscle mass on my deadlift than I do my squat. Yeah. I mean, uh, for, for, I'll, I'll give an example. Um, just, just two lifters that are kind of, kind of similarly sized on my team. Um, Brandon Dudley, he's a, he's very gifted lifter, not too far into powerlifting in general, but he was a D one baseball player before he powerlifted and he had a very good, uh, muscular base and he does four sets of squat per week, including his top set. That's it. That's all he does. Um, he's just, he's got a ton of muscle mass and, we know for a fact that like, because he's moving so much weight, if I push him too hard, he's going to get exhausted earlier in the, in the training cycle. And it hasn't happened yet, you know, knock on wood, but I would imagine that if I were to really push his squat volume super hard, that would really increase his risk of injury because he's such a tall guy moving so much weight. Um, whereas with, with Keenan Lee, um, he is, just, you know, an absolute freak beast of an athlete. He's more injury prone than Brandon, but when I give him, you know, less sets, he is just not going to progress very well. Um, so we had to figure out a way to actually get him to be able to do more work. And and that ultimately comes back to that example that I had before, where we're doing a lot of like low rep sets and that seems to work well for him. Um, 
you know, everybody's going to be a little bit different, even when it comes down to being more muscular. Uh, I think it's amazing that you brought up, um, Charlie Dixon, because he's literally my favorite example of the whole muscle mass, uh, it overcomes leverage. If you look at, at the way that Charlie's levers are, he's not really well shaped for any lift. And it just makes perfect sense. I like, cause I've never seen his, his program before, but it makes perfect sense that that's what his program is like. Um, and I think ultimately the, the topic in general, when it comes to injury prone lifters is that you have to be okay with your training being a little bit weird. You have to be okay. If you are the guy who is over on the leg press while the rest of your friends are finishing up their fifth set of squats, you know, um, and yeah, that's ultimately what it comes down to is, is, uh, don't be afraid to experiment and just, uh, yeah. understand that you're, you're in a way you are a special snowflake. Um, maybe not in the way you'd like it, but you know, ultimately you can make progress it, just because you are quote injury prone. Doesn't mean you are going to be injured forever. Right. And I think that's a really great perspective too to have. It's like, this is an injury right now. You know what? I'm going to work around it. And sometimes out of injury, like you can really, there is a, is a gift you learn also things about yourself and you'll learn like a lot of mental strategies to help overcome that. And it also kind of shows you that, you know, strength can be lost and it can also be built, built back up depending on um, what's going on in, in your life. So this is one topic I didn't send you the, 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 um, the prompt for, but something I've been thinking about a little more is like, is I think that's pretty easy to create predictability with like, we're talking about lower frequencies. I say, you know, two times a week of squatting and, and, deadlifting we're talking about the three to four even five times a week like for frequencies i think it's even more unpredictable um i had a conversation with my friend brendan about this who um was one of the he's like the hot usabl coach in michigan but like that's a really difficult strategy like a thing to do and a big trap a lot of people do not talk about when you are increasing frequency so i want to ask you what are some strategies that you can use because i think that you know obviously we any powerlifting coach worth their sauce knows that frequency is a huge determinant of strength you know all us being equal probably is there's such a big skill component to strength the more frequently that we can train a lift we're probably going to see a little better progress so how would you create a little more more predictability say you have a lifter who's going from three times a week benching to four times a week sure so first of all i, I think just to kind of give a, a little background like what you said generally speaking all things all things uh assumed equal frequency is going to be better um, we have, you know, research on that in the form of the Norwegian frequency project, even though that was technically never published. Um, and then from a personal standpoint, anecdotally, I have, I have SBD'd six days a week at one point during, uh, during COVID just for fun, just to see how it would work for fun. Um, <laughs> yeah. Just for fun. I mean, I did you have anything else to do? I didn't. Yeah, um, I just watched. <laughs> yeah. So, well, we, I was, I was lucky enough to have a combo rack and plates in my garage. So, you know, nice. I just. Yeah, I, I, I did, um, did that six times a week. <laughs> um, so I think uh, through my coaching experience, as well as that, I, I, I do know a thing or two on that. So when, when moving, um, an athlete to a slightly higher frequency, yeah, I would agree that there's going to be a little bit less predictability overall. Um, I think it's going to come down to one, uh, just things we already hit on. So leverage and, and muscle mass, right. Um, I think that depending on how good this individual uh, is leveraged is probably going to determine how you can create that predictability more than anything else. Um, so just as an example, if somebody has just say really short arms when they're bench pressing and, and they move to four times a week benching, 
they're more than likely uh, going to be able to recover very well from bench press because in general, they can handle more work, right? Because that bar is just simply not moving as much. Same thing with somebody with a very high arch, right? So when adding that fourth bench day, you need to say, okay, so what is going to allow me to perform best on my um, my peak bench press day? Uh, I think it's fair to say that bench press is probably the lift that gets the least out of a peak. Would you Would you agree there? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I usually see. I think a lot of this is because like the absolute load lifted, and most people is just lower. I think like I typically like three percent is like five pounds if you could do it do it right. So it's like in peak, you know. <laughs> yeah, um, and then you have have you know just the outside factor of the press commands and the holds. The holds are a big one. I, I feel like just as a slight tangent, the one thing that people do extremely wrong in their training is they never hold their bench press sets before they start. And that is what kills people on meet day, not the press commands. Hot take there. I think that's a great point because if there's a lot of like the isometric contraction there, it's like, it's not easy. And also like if your setup isn't great, which a lot of people isn't great, you're going to probably have your arch go down lower <laughs> during that yeah. time. And that's going to put you in a worse position to press from. That's also why I think you'll start to see injuries, especially at meets more common than in training. Yeah, I, I would agree with that completely. But yeah, um, all, all that assumes like you for any bench press approach, if we're talking bench press specifically, it is more important than anything to create predictability because you you want to be strong on a certain day. Uh, you want to make it easier to line up with the meat because like we just said, it's very hard to get a lot out of a, out of a bench press peak. At least that's the way that I, I typically approach things. So creating that predictability is going to be super duper important. Um, so back to the leverage conversation going around in circles here. Uh, you have to ask yourself when you're adding this fourth day in, where does it make the most sense uh, where I'm I'm going to continue to see an, an upswing in performance? And I mean, we also have to ask, why are we adding that fourth day, right? Like, you know, is it because, is it because of a skill practice issue? Is it because we're just not feeling strong? Like there's a lot of different reasons. Is it because we just need to add more muscle mass? Um, so wherever, wherever that day is being added is, is going to matter. Um, most based on that particular goal. Now, for sake of example, let's just say it's a skill issue, right? We just don't feel as practiced with the, the bench press. Um, you need to know a little bit more about just in general, like how that lifter works. Like, do they feel strong, you know, after a day of rest on bench press, do they feel better after they've benched the day previous, uh, that sort of stuff. Um, again, for sake of example, if we're talking like a, you know, short range of motion bench presser, most of the time, I think you're probably going to find that they feel better after they've benched the day previous. So maybe you're adding in that fourth day, you know, just before. Okay, cool. Now, does that lifter feel better doing higher or lower reps? Okay, cool. More than likely this person who's very efficient, uh, we can at least assume that, you know, a little bit more work might be be good for them. So that would be, you know, my best guess. Boom. We put that in the, the day before their, their primary day is just some extra practice. And we get kind of guess and check from there. And unfortunately, when it comes to high frequency training, it really is just sort of a guess and check system. Mind you, you're making educated guesses. Like I said, you're looking at leverage, muscle mass, recovery patterns. Um, I, I have a concept that I, I talk about on uh, my powerlifting now video that came out a few months ago called rate of exposure, which is just basically measuring the amount of preparedness that a lifter has versus the amount of fatigue um, for each lift. So I, I find for creating predictability in, in higher, higher frequency strategies, that's kind of the thing that you need to know most. Like what is your lifter's rate of exposure for, for all of their lifts? Um, and that's, that's generally going to allow you to um, basically create a strong day as a result of that. Just, as long as you are optimizing that rate of exposure on the days where you want to be the strongest, 
you're, you're probably going to be strong. Um, so again, just as an example, if, if somebody's rate of exposure on bench press is 24 hours, there you go. Like that means that their fatigue is no longer high enough that it is going to mask their performance and their, their, uh, sort of movement pattern is, is going to feel good as a result of that exposure to that particular lift. So as long as you're placing that, that day, um, at that point in the week, that's, that's, what's ultimately going to create predictability in that strategy more than anything else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that one thing is that like Kelly Mann talked about on the, on my podcast with her is she said that it really comes down to like looking at what the previous turning day was, because that usually is what going is going to dictate especially on bench press, like how that primary day like does feel. And you have to find, you know, like she, she mentioned these exact things that, that you did. So this is kind of cool hearing, hearing you saw something similar. I think where it gets a little more tricky sometimes is like, how much of like your squat potentially your deadlift actually interfere with your deadlift? How much does your deadlift potentially your squat actually interfere like with, with your squat? Because I mean, I've seen the most wacky things. Like, like with myself, it's like I literally do a setting sets two days be, be before my primary squats, and I do like belt squats after that, and I also do like conventional deadlift like a single and like a three by eight and like leg curls, and like I found I'm somewhat stronger like doing that I do it 24 or 48 hours later of my primary squats. And like the only explanation I have basically is like probably because I am, I'm not a very well technical squatter that helps potentiate my, my technique also helps me more be aware of my quads is more like inflammation. So I never feel fresh on my legs. Like I actually know if my legs don't feel, if my legs feel fresh on squats, I'm probably not going to be strong. It's more about managing my own back fatigue. Um, and I think that's a big question you have to ask between squatting and deadlifting, especially with the turning splits, is the axial load. Because the reality is that I think anybody's had this experience of like, you have the sorest quads in the world, but like, it's not, it shouldn't really affect your deadlift too much. Because if you're deadlifting properly, it's a hip hinge. And, right. you know, beyond that initial point off the floor, it's not really dependent on your quad strength. And it's more technical, anyways. Um, so, I think with, with bench press, you I mean you basically touched on it perfectly. They're like, you have to experiment. You have to see like how, you know, when like, what do you just feel best with, especially when adding in that fourth bench day. And then like, with it's like a squat and deadlift. It's like, it just has to do with like finding like overall, like the, like the general split between the two that manages both of those. Cause like some lifters will just feel best if they do squats and deadlifts together. Um, I do think it comes to be more difficult to manage though. Deadlift predictability. Once you add in that third squat day, so what are some things that you might do like like with that? Like how have you seen like deadlift volume be like affected or like intensity or like in terms of like the overall training split when you go like a three times a week squatting? Which I think it's probably getting less frequent, especially with like more male lifters. I think with most females, like it's pretty common to see like three times a week squatting for if I'm if I'm not, not mistaken. Yeah. I mean, so for a third squat day or, or even, even like a secondary deadlift day, um, to me, the low body lifts when you're adding a, a second or third day, um, that day should generally serve the purpose mostly of just skill practice, right? Like you're, you're, cause we know, we know, especially from the latest research that like when it comes to muscle mass, uh, you can get away with doing volume one time per week, as long as the volume's equated, like that whole idea of frequency, uh, is, is a little bit less important for that kind of stuff, um, than what was originally predicted. Now, mind you, maybe there's some practical implications on like, well, maybe you have higher quality sets on a second day, that sort of deal, whatever. But that still kind of comes back to what I was saying before, where, you know, we're talking about skill practice. So that secondary day, I, I think, I think it's Marcellus that has said this before, but it's, it's keep, you keep the secondary day secondary when, and in case of 
three times a week squatting, you would keep the tertiary day tertiary. Um, again, uh, I feel like I'm talking about Austin a lot, but his training is kind of fresh in my mind. Cause I'm, I've been working on a, a little summary of his training up into raw nationals for like the last month. And I won't release it until it's perfect. Um, but one of the, the big things for Austin is he is a three times a week squatter and, uh, his tertiary squat day is nothing. It is, it is very, very light pause squats that we increase by two and a half kilos every training cycle. That's it. No, no big change there. And it is there specifically just for him practicing a pattern that contributes well to his squat. And that's it. Um, I think when it comes to adding a, a third squat day, I, I, I will agree that it's going to be less common for males, but I do think that if you have very efficient squatters, um, I think you're going to find for a lot of them that squatting two times per week won't always feel super good because they don't get enough practice. Um, and that's, that's actually where the whole idea of rate of exposure came from in the first place. Um, I always found that I needed to squat three times a week for my squats to feel good. And then I realized that my problem was that my squat days were just too far apart. And then as soon as I moved them closer together, that's when I started to have my squat feel good. Um, anyway, with, with, yeah, with that third squat day, it, it just, it has to be easy. That's, that's what it, what it comes down to. Um, whether it's a guy or a girl, uh, you, you need to have that third day be very, very, very easy. Um, a strategy that I like, uh, is like I said, either just, uh, increasing it by two and a half kilos each training block. And then, you know, it goes up sort of the same increment. Like with Austin, we do 10 kilo jumps on, on that day. Um, or one that I like for my female athletes is just the same weight. We, we literally do the exact same weight, uh, or weight range, uh, across blocks, um, that's the same with, uh, with Angelo Fortino's, uh, secondary deadlift day. He has, he has a weight range and the RPE stays static throughout his entire training block. And he just goes higher or lower depending on how fatigued he feels. And that generally potentiates the progression on his primary day. So that's, that's what it comes down to with, with a tertiary squad is it, it is, it's there usually for the purpose of just making your movement pattern feel better. It's not really there for overload. And as long as you keep that in mind with whatever strategy you employ, you're probably going to see success with it. It's a really great point too, about just like, cause we talk a lot about with um, like strength, oh, it has to be like that overload, but like with bodybuilding and stuff like that, it's like how much of your curls like really progressed. Like you can stay within like the similar, like loading range for a long amount of time and make a lot of progress. Like I'm the strongest I've ever been in my life. My loading range is not that much, that much different. It just takes time sometimes to get um, just have those adaptations happen. Um, a lot of times it's like you might be doing everything right on paper, but like you just need like more time, especially as you get more advanced. Um, so I think that maybe makes a lot of sense with, you know, the, the, the limiting that third squat day. And in most cases, you know, that's going to come right before your primary day. Um, how much have you found the like deadlift changes in response to that increase in frequency and on squat? You know, it, it's, I think it depends a little bit more on, uh, like you touched on before the, the axial loading between the two lifts. Um, so I always look at what I always call it is torso angle change. I always look at how much somebody's torso angle actually moves through uh, a squat and a deadlift. And generally speaking, like if, if we see a lot of torso angle change through somebody's squat, like usually somebody with a, a quite uh, small torso in comparison to their legs, um, you're, <laughs> you're generally going to see that person's squat affect their deadlift, um, a little bit more because they're hinging more, right. They're, they're, um, you know, using, uh, a little bit more of the posterior chain, particularly more of the back because they are, you know, stabilizing that weight. 
so it, it really is just going to depend on how how well they're shaped to squat versus deadlift. Um, like I, I I would say for um, the more efficient squatters on on my roster, uh, they can kind of get away with that increase in frequency and and not have it affect deadlift as much as somebody who isn't. Yeah, it makes makes a lot of sense. So basically, just you know, saying like how fatigue does your back feel on that, and then finding a way to still get in that intensity that also doesn't like interfere with the, with their how they feel on squats. Um, I think like a really easy way to go like, go about this. Like, there's a way that, that you can like obviously like you know some people will feel better with that with like, the primary days like both on the same day. Um, usually like you know like you said the more probably more efficient squatters. I'm like 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 for myself like I was doing for the longest time. Um, my, my split was like on um, secondary squat. Then I'd, the day after I would do primary deadlift, and that worked for a little bit. But I I talked to my coach Eric, and I was like, eh, I always don't feel like I can actually output enough on that day, so I just put like one right, right, like day of rest in between in between that. And then I then I was like, okay, cool. Because of that, though, actually, I can't have my primary day on Friday anymore because I still could beat up in my in my my back because although I might have good deadlift leverages, I have a really long range of range of motion still. And I'm lifting all the absolute loads that affected my, how my back felt on that Friday squat day. So I'd like change things around. And so I'd also think it's being okay with, you know, understanding, well, I have a new completely different training stimulus. Therefore my split or the layout where I deadlift the heaviest and whatnot might have to change in response to that. And like, you know, like, you know maybe having to go to like a variation. So like two to days from deadlifting in front of the, from the floor, there's nothing wrong with doing an RDL, especially if you're a single deadlifter. There's a lot of times I, I find some developers have no idea how to hinge. Um, yeah. And that's a huge part of deadlifting. And the best developers are great at, at hinging and staying in that position, especially off the floor. Um, and when things get, get, get difficult, you'll just see that they just stay. Like, Angel's a great, great, great example. Like, he's a very efficient some developer, great hinging. And just, you know, as long as he stays in, in, position, in position and it moves, he's probably going to lock it out. Um, that's also an interesting conversation with, like, your own, like, devil strategy. I had this talk with a lot of my athletes who were like, man, like I get anything moving off the floor on deadlift, I think it's hard on my knees. I'm like, you bias and deflection. <laughs> like that's expected. I think also that you know, how you, you know, that if you're more deflection based on deadlift, it's probably going to affect your squat a little bit more than if you're biased into extension a little right. bit more. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, man. I, I think, um, again, just like personal anecdote, my, my biggest deadlift progression ever happened when I started doing uh, RDLs twice a week. So yeah, I, I can agree with that completely. The more efficient um, you are at hinging, the better. Uh, I, I think that also as, as uh, people that do the majority of our hinge volume through a deadlift, we don't get a lot of eccentric based exposure. So I, I think the more um, you know, eccentric based hinging that we're doing, the better we're going to be deadlifting because at that point, you know, we get a little bit more balance between the hip flexors and extensors. Whereas if we're not you know, getting that eccentric component, the hip flexors tend to not be as strong in that position. And then that's when you kind of start to see people kind of bias a little bit more into that flexion because their start position isn't as good. They have to be a little bit more, um, they have to create that efficiency by, by rounding a little bit forward by placing their hips artificially closer to the barbell. Um, so I, I, yeah, I think that that's a, a wonderful way to approach deadlifting in general. And and I think you'd be surprised as to how little actual comp deadlift volume people could get away with so long as they're supplementing with a, a really good hip hinge accessory that they're pushing hard. Right. You know, I also think it has to like, for me though, it's like I recover from a deadlift extremely well. So like I push like single and then and conventional um, both. And I find like I make the best progress that way. I think there's, that's actually an interesting topic too. Like, I feel like, well, like you, you kind of find like a formula with like a lifter, the more longer that you work with them, 
And then it's not making about making these huge tweaks to it. It's making very small tweaks based on what they're feeling. Um, like one of my lifters, Philip, he took a, um, he was really strong on deadlift. Um, like he was, you know, projected for like a 325. And then like, we took all positive. So just, it just tanked. Um, and we didn't realize that until like this last block, Philip and I were talking. He's like, we didn't do positive lifts. Like we kind of took them out recently. And I don't think it was the fact that we need like more deadlift on. I think it's, I need that to like reinforce my position, my position off the floor. And the reality is that there are some variations you do need to keep and that are going to derive, um, you know, those technique things. Because like, for example, for me, I have a very difficult time feeling that, that stack rib cage this position. Um, also, because I do a little more of a high bar based squat, although I don't really like thinking about versus high bar, low bar. I just tell my lifters split wherever it feels more comfortable on, on your back. You can maintain midfoot pressure. Um, I really rely have to like a limiting factor is the extension strength in my back and safety bar squats reinforce two things that are lagging in my squat. Um, and so I think that like, you know, and then I can, you know, it's just about finding like two vibrations that are going to like drive your progress. Sometimes you just, you can't keep them out. And like, you don't know why maybe you don't have some like things. I, Mike Ashiro has a great thing <laughs> about saying, I don't really care why it works. It's, it just don't works. That's what matters. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I think, I think you're hitting on uh, something that I was, I was going to talk about with modern powerlifting strategies. And that is that uh, your, your training should be predictable, right? Like you, I don't know about you, but I, I think people get into this paradigm of, I need to do X number of blocks in a row before I'm ready to hit a PR, right? And then when we don't get that PR at the end of the blocks, it feels very much like that entire period of time was wasted. And to me, I think that that sort of block periodization and approach um, is a little bit outdated for that exact reason. If you are, and I think we see this in not just with, you know, athletes that I coach, but I, I see this with a lot of other like really good coaches. If you create a predictable training model, you can see progress more often and in bigger leaps. Very, very, very much the case. Um, now that doesn't mean that you still shouldn't have like certain like elements of periodization across those blocks, but the strategy itself should be quite predictable. And that comes down to, yeah, maybe you are leaving pause deadlifts in, even though, you know, it, you would think maybe getting a little bit more specific and doing more comp deadlift work closer to, you know, going for some kind of personal best would make more sense. But for whatever reason, that pause deadlift contributes very well to that lifter's ability to execute. And so you have to keep it in. So I, I agree with you as far as making like little tweaks. And I, I think that that's what modern powerlifting training should look like is from block to block, you're making the tiniest little tweaks to allow conti continued progression along a predictable spectrum of training. Yeah. Actually going off of that. So like, one of the things I've wrestled with is I, I look at more of the advanced athletes. I feel like there's less changes year round to their, to their structures in like in general. Um, and you know, I don't think there's like huge difference in doing sets of five and sets of four, you know, for example. Um, and my biggest thing I've been thinking about is I think the main reason for block changes isn't from a physiological level, it's from a psychological level, but still staying engaged with the process because it's like, Oh, I'm making progress in like five instead of sixes. It's a little bit, it's a little bit different, you know, and also powders, we just like lifting heavy. And I think that's the main utility of that, having using some sort of like a linear um, progression model downwards. Um, although like, you know, like I mentioned earlier, like I don't do that for myself. If I'm going, you know, into a peak, I actually increase my reps on some of my, you know, my, as my, my downs, my tops that like go, goes up, I might literally increase my, my back down average and in intensity. And I 
and that's actually going to be the case with a lot of lifters I've, I've coached. It's like you actually kind of need that. And if you're having like everything go down at once, they just it's just too much. And, you know, it goes back to like the, the tonnage or intensity or whatever equation with that. And I think that with periodization, it's like it matters and it matters for, for strength. I think Greg Knuckles even had like some sort of like research reviewers, like it doesn't really matter. Um, but for like strength, it matters, but like not as much as we might have thought in the past. Yeah. We it don't... comes down to being actually like friends and just saying like, I don't know, like I, I don't like making much changes. I know it sounds like really like lazy coaching. Well, like if a client isn't making progress, I'm going to ask them, do you want to change anything for next block? <laughs> because like, I, I know that like there's some concepts of like, you know, like, you know, in early, even like 2019, it's crazy how much like this is like progressed. But like, if you talk about like juggernaut training systems, like talking like adaptive resistance, like, I don't think that's really a thing. I think that, you know, there just is like time courses of like adaptations and then you have to have like some variation. Um, but I guess where I'm going with this is like, I don't think you need to change blocks all the time. I think if it's still working, like you can really get the same exact block like over and over again. I think that's, that's reactive training systems like one-on-one. If it's still working, maybe you just need to deload and, and that's it. And then you just do the same thing, like a, like a pivot week. I know that's what they do all the time. We're going to do a, a pivot week and we'll go back to what was working. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's sort of the way that I do things. Um, it's, a, it's a little bit different in that uh, I still cycle through. So the way that I, I periodize the top sets, that is what I periodize. So we might, a lifter might go from doubles to triples to singles or excuse me, triples to doubles to singles, something like that. Like that's a classic. Does Marcellus do that too? Marcellus does that. Um, you know, and, and that's not, that's not to say that like every client that I work with is doing that. Like I have a, I have a, a girl, Hannah Motek. Um, we have just found for whatever reason, the combination of intensity and reps does not work well for her. So rather than doing just singles year round, we do variations that we know, contribute to her one RM strength and they are progressively less limiting across our training blocks. So we do a tempo squat with a pause, a pause squat and a regular squat across three blocks. And that's how that's periodized, but yeah. nothing else changes. We, we generally speaking, keep the rep ranges relatively the same. And I think that that's kind of one of the things that if we're talking uh, modern powerlifting strategies, like I'm sure you felt this before, right? With us, with a certain lift. Like if I gave, if I gave you fives, you could adapt to those all day long. You could, you could keep going for weeks and weeks and weeks on end. Whereas if I gave you like 15s, you would probably, you know, you'd be able probably to do that. Cry. From, well, yeah, but you'd probably be able to do that for like two weeks. And then you're, you'd be like, this is too exhausting. Like this, like from, even just psychologically, you're, you're like, I'm not going to be able to progress with this. So uh, what I always do when I'm onboarding a lifter is I'm looking at their leverages. I'm looking at their muscle mass. I'm looking at their training history and I'm trying to judge, okay, where is that sort of magic range for us as far as where your back down sets ought to be, where you can be the most efficient and you can generally adapt very well and continue to see progress as a result of using this rep range. And the way that I will periodize things is like, let's say somebody, I look at somebody and they're generally pretty good at higher rep work. Right. So maybe for them, you know, that's nine to seven repetitions. So they have a top set, which for argument's sake, let's say it's a triple. Then they have a primary back down set, which during block one, we'll say is nines. And then their back down sets are nines. The next block, the two top sets lower. So we go down to doubles and we go to sets of eight on the top set, but then we're still doing nines. And those back down sets, 
we're usually not advancing them too much. So like one of the things I really like to do on primary days is the the primary back down set is the the RPE based part. And then the other back downs are just percentage based. And then each each block, we're only increasing that percentage every every so little bit. And that works very, very well um, for, for, for most people. And in fact, uh, just across across a training cycle, most of the time that lifter is not uh, like they're still they're still doing. Uh, I think this is way less common, but for sake of example, nines like they'd still be doing nines during their peaking block because that's what's working. Um, and and that's uh, that's another thing uh, that I I think I could probably hit on here. Uh, don't change your 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 peak just because you're 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 peaking. peaking. Um, that's a, a huge mistake that a lot of people make. They are like, oh, well, I'm doing a peaking block. So I have to do my heavier work earlier on the block, even though I'm definitely not adapted to training this block yet. I'm going to do it anyway. And then they wonder why they fall flat on meat day. Um, it's an interesting topic too, because like with the peaking, I feel like there's a, like, especially as you get stronger. One of the things I told Eric, um, is with a past piece, we've only had like, because Eric usually doesn't like getting singles year round. And I was like, I just, I feel like I'm always rushing my 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 peak and that's why i feel like i, I always like overshoot because i just don't have enough time to like adapt to those singles and i think that that's a big thing with like lifters especially as they get stronger is like they need more time with those singles i think you also need to keep in that heavier intensity year round um just to make sure they're not really getting detrained from that like eric helms talked about that with one of my podcasts about he periodizes them with like just average intensity um and i think that's a great way to do to do things i also think just in general like Every you know, the stronger that you are in general, you're going to need more time to peak that peak strength, um, and get those you know those things actually down. And that's one of the things I've observed with a lot of my lifters is like sometimes from a coaching perspective, like they need more of that and more of that for the singles exposure, especially if they can tolerate them well. Whereas it's interesting is that some of my athletes, it's like they can't do singles for like longer than like a block, and but they need like more higher intensity like peak things and like or else they'll just like they'll just like sputter. And then what I'll do like, as I'll do like, you know, let's do like a linear progression downwards with the top set, keep me in the downs that's like the exact same, you know, with a little more, keep like, you know, more than average intensity, like, or so like that RPE relative intensity, like the same, and they peak really well using that. One other thing I've been experimenting with a little bit is, you know, the meal to cost the time to peak. And let's say that well, the first time to peak is four weeks. One of the things that I have done in the past is I'm like, okay, four week block, taper fifth week. And what I've changed a little more towards is I want to, as timing that, more around their peak week. Like, okay, I want, like, where your meat is, you have a four-week peak, I'm going to try to align training as much up with that because it's so much more predictable. Because if I always don't, I feel like dog shit on week, on week one, I'm, I'm just trying to just salvage that that performance from that from that week four. Well, why not when when we already know fitness is extremely high, We and also you don't do that much, much of a taper anyway that week. It's you, it's, it looks like a, like a deload week. And that's what I do anyways on my blocks anyways is, um, I, I talk about this is like, I lower down one set, I keep, I keep I, intensity goes up now in normal training, whereas say I'm going to like a more like a five to seven on like a peak, a peak week, but I keep my accessories in and it just is two days cessation training before me. And I have seen so much better results with my athletes and with myself with that approach. I don't feel like shit. I'm not stressed out. Um, and I usually haven't overreached in that, at that point. I also like, in that third week, say I, I pull back to like half normal jump I might take, and hopefully that moves better and I feel really good. I'm like, okay, cool, I feel really good. Because I think like if you feel good going into the meet, generally you're going to do well. But that's like the number one mistake I see people do, other than just going too fucking heavy. But everybody knows that 
like it is is not timing that rate of exposure like you kind of said with but you know you peak anyways yeah yeah and that's that's the that's a big thing man like everybody everybody changes and uh i will say this i i'm, I'm not gonna walk around and pretend like this this is an idea that i came up with uh this is this is something that uh i i hear in the in a lot of the coaching circles that i'm in and and uh, i thank god that i have learned this because this has been the biggest game changer for for me for my own programming skill um it, so many people like their training would be going so well and then they fall flat on meat day and that i mean don't get me wrong it's not like it's a bulletproof system that you know bad meats will still happen even if you do have a pretty predictable setup but you are in a much much better position much much better position to have a good meat day if you just do the same thing that you do every single block the less stuff that you change the better you you should think of the last week of a a peaking block just like a a good final week of your training block that you're trying to to optimize just a little bit better just a little bit and that's that's the thing is is you um, even, even just the way that I, I taper people on those weeks, it's, it's relatively reactive, you know, like rather than taking away a certain number of sets, I have a range and I say, I have like an, if then protocol and, and I'll, I'll say like, you know, if you feel the same or better than last week, do the same number of sets. If you feel worse than last week, do this many sets. And that works super duper well. Um, you know, it's, it's gen. And I mean, there, there's of course, like you have to be sure that you're defining what feeling better actually means because, you know, that can, yeah. that can be a little bit too subjective, you know? Um, but as long as you, you and the athlete understand that they're going to have a good day. Right. Yeah. I know. And I think that peaking is, you know, sometimes you like you said, you're just got bad meets sometimes. That's not an indicative of like your training cycle going poorly or whatever. Like a lot of times it comes down to technical errors or maybe, you know, you, you cut too much weight or, you know, you just don't respond while the water cutting. Like that's a big one. I found with people, it's like some people that like, Oh, like gut like three percent, like with like water weight, totally fine. I'm fine. Like, cool. That's not everybody. Yeah. Like, not everybody can do that. Um, and I would argue most people can't, especially two hour, two hour weigh in. That's why we see gut manipulation really being the thing. Especially like now, one thing I would caveat with that is that if somebody eats like a child, anyways, it's not really gonna work very well. If you're yeah. with somebody like like me and you eat like a lot of fiber and fruits and vegetables, it's like I can lose like easily three percent on my body weight if I go to the gut cut. I also I'm gonna I'm gonna say this. I I think that the way the gut cut is, and this is no offense to Steve, because obviously it, it's still in a, a really good way to do it. I think that the way that people execute gut cuts currently uh, is suboptimal. The reason being is that your stomach just does not feel the same against the belt when you are squatting. 100%. And so the way that I have been doing it lately that I found some success with is I actually have people gut cut to the point that they finish their gut cut uh, a day early. And then we're essentially adding electrolytes, fluid, and foods that they typically eat back in over the course of that last day. And we're literally just monitoring their weight. And because we're not really dehydrated, well, you're a little dehydrated, obviously, from like the change in, in fiber gut content, whatever. Um, but because we're not really that dehydrated, usually that works a little bit better because then your leverage still feels normal. So... I like that a little bit better in terms of the way of executing a gut cut. I, I think that it ends up, you, you just end up feeling a little bit more normal that way. And I actually, I, I, I hearken back to when like Lane Norton was going to IPF world. I can recall him um, saying that he would always finish his cuts a day early. And then he would be like just spamming Skittles on the way to the way in and Susie Hartwig, Gary being like, do you really want to do that? And, and he would be like, yes. And um, so that, that, 
comes to mind again, obviously with any weight cut, nothing's going to be foolproof, but I think that that takes out one more, one more variable in terms of the way that you might feel um, by finishing that a little early. I, I like that approach a lot. Um, like, so obviously, you know, if you're, you, know, you don't want to eat like, you know, the same amount of volume of foods that you do, you know, because that's pretty much going to get you back up to normal within that day, but you know, more around than normal and getting your hydration and, you know, and whatnot. Um, you know, obviously if you're having a 24 hour weigh-in, it doesn't really matter. You have that time anyway. So the two hour weigh-in, it's like it cutting becomes more of a, of a skill. Like yeah. the 24 hour weigh-ins, you can do lots of things wrong and still get away with it. Like we saw the American pro or we like, I've seen American pro out of this time on the stories. I'm like, Holy crap. Um, <laughs> But yeah, in, in general, it's like, I, I think that you might all probably agree, like, unless it's like, you have a chance of actually winning money, or like, you're really competitive at this meet, or it's a really high level meet, you probably shouldn't cut weight. Because like, I mean, the, surprisingly, the best way to get stronger is to get stronger, not cut weight. And getting jacked too is really important. Um, Because, you know, restricting yourself to that weight class, you know, especially if you're, if you're tall or whatever, um, can really just down just make your progress just not as good in general so don't get like, focused on the cut focus on getting stronger doing things to get you stronger and over time as you fill out your normal weight class anyways you're gonna be stronger in the long run yeah i mean i i think i would i would caveat so i agree with you but i would caveat it by saying that it also depends on the lifter that you're talking to right like if you if if the lifter that you're coaching is like a 42 year old dad that just does powerlifting because he likes to lift and he likes a competitive outlet for that and He's not really focused on being a national level competitor, then yeah, maybe you, maybe you do want to cut because you want to feel competitive at your local competition. But yeah, if you're like, if you're somebody who is nationally competitive or even just like is a national level lifter, like, yeah, you can just go do a meet for fun. You don't have to be your same weight class. More than likely, you're probably going to make better progress that way. Um, it just depends. It depends on the context, but yeah, well, for the most I, part, I, 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 I guess the caveat there is like an extreme gut cut, like 2% is like not a big, like a, a, a big deal. But like, if you're going to like, those three to five percent is a little more serious. Like, yeah, but still, it, it depends. Um, obviously, but um, Joe, I really want to thank you for coming on. This is a lot of fun as usual. I have a, a blast on all these podcasts. Uh, if you want to find you, how you for coaching, keep up with you on the TikToks and everything that you're doing. <laughs> the TikToks, <laughs> um, he's yeah. dancing in front of the cameras. Yeah, so day. uh, you can you can find me mostly on on Instagram these days. Uh, TikTok is something that is is kind of I have a, a whiteboard in front of me of, of things that I need to to do. And one of them says, says, get back on TikTok." But, uh, no, yeah, you can Bro, I cannot, on- I, I've tried to get on TikTok like five times. I'm like, can't do this. <laughs> it is to be fair. It is not a platform that's based super well for informational content. So I can completely understand that. Um, but to me, uh, being on TikTok as, as an informative, uh, person powerlifting is investing in the next generation. I know for a fact, there've been people that have, have, come up to me and said, I got into powerlifting because of you. So to me, that makes it all worth it. Um, so uh, since we're talking about TikTok, I am at the Joe Stanek on there. Uh, Instagram is Joe underscore game day. And then uh, if you are interested in working with myself or any of the other amazing coaches at game day barbell, um, you can always hit us up on the game day barbell website, gamedaybarbell.com or me personally, my uh, email is probably the best way to get hold of me for coaching inquiries, which is Joe at gamedaybarbell.com. Uh, I do not currently have spots open, but those will open at the beginning of the year, which is when I'm planning on taking on a, a few more lifters. So I do have a wait list if anyone's inter- if anyone is interested in that. Amazing. Well, I'll make sure I include all those uh, things in the show notes below, so where you guys can just go and click or tap. So uh, yeah, thank you guys for listening, and I'll talk to you guys in the next one.